0: Oh good morning. It is good to see you this morning on what has turned out to be somewhat of a dreary and dark uh, beginning or at least start to the weekend and uh, we're thankful that you're here joining with us. I want uh, to do a couple things before we turn our attention to the Word of God and if you want you can begin to turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. There's two quick things. One, Uh, You'll notice in your bulletin that the uh, ladies' railside luncheon is coming up. And so ladies, this is my imploring of you. Uh, You'll also notice there that it says this is the last one. Uh, There have been some changes that have been made there at railside and so forth. And so this is the last railside luncheon. Uh, Carla Witters is going to be the speaker there for that. If you've ever thought about signing up, sign up. This is the year to do it. Uh, be be a part of that group this year. We've rented the big room and so that means we can accommodate the numbers. And so if that is something that you've always wanted to do, ladies, I encourage you strongly to do that. And so uh, that is uh, such a special thing we've done for many, many years and we're trying to go out with a bang uh, with it. And so that's that's the exciting thing. We thank the Lord for those who have had a hand in uh, developing and leading and overseeing this part of the women's ministries and so continue to recognize the need and the opportunity to be here at such a special event as this one coming up at the beginning of November. Uh, as we turn our attention then a little bit m- more closely uh, to our study, uh, we recognize that a lot of events have taken place. A lot of people have been asking me questions about is, is what, happening, what we see happening today in Israel prophecy being fulfilled? And I would say, maybe. We don't know, do we? Uh, We see certain elements in which we would say, yes, this looks like prophecy being fulfilled. We see enemies rising against the nation of Israel. We see a number of enemies who, even just two or three weeks ago, we're talking peace, are now siding with the enemies of Israel. And so we see a lot happening and churning in this place Uh, That has been really the epicenter of much of human history since the creation. But is it prophecy? We don't know. If Israel were to be wiped off the face of the map tomorrow as a nation, would that destroy our theology? And the answer is no, it would not. Because one day the Lord will gather Israel in her land and fulfill his word to her. And so in light of that truth, as we see these things beginning to happen in the land of Israel, we're excited because it turns our attention towards the second coming of Christ. That is our ultimate goal as believers, to have our attention so diverted there that we would be those who are faithful, endeavoring to serve the Lord in every circumstance and every situation today, which includes, perhaps maybe this is not what the Lord is doing, Maybe he is not yet coming back, and to that we glorify God as well because Peter says that the Lord is patient towards those who have not yet come to know him as Savior. And so in God's patience and his love and his mercy, let us be those who are found faithful, not so focused on the immediacy of the events that are unfolding before us, but understand that God is in control and he is directing the events that are happening in the nation of Israel, and therefore we pray That God would turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to himself. That is our drive. That is what we pray for. But we see, and it is appropriate for us, and I encourage you throughout your interactions with social media and your interactions with others, to call what we're seeing in the nation, or what's happened to the nation of Israel in the last week and a day, to call them not tragedies, but atrocities, Tragedies are natural events that occur. Atrocities are committed by the acts of evil individuals with evil intentions. Let us be faithful in calling what's going on there what it actually is. And may we then be those who are diligent like the Apostle Paul, willing to give everything up for the sake of the restoration of the nation of Israel, that they would come to know Christ as Saviour. In light of that, we recognize that there will be persecutions that come, and this transitions then for us as we begin to think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. There are uh, going to be persecutions that come, challenges to your faith, and the question is, will you stand firm? And news is coming back from Thessalonica, and it's coming from Timothy, the trusted confidant, the protege of the Apostle Paul. As I was preparing the sermon this week, I was mindful of July the 8th, 1741. That's not a date that you just pull out randomly, by the way. Uh, I was mindful of this date because Jonathan Edwards was preaching a sermon that he never had the opportunity, at least in this situation, to finish. We know that sermon today by its title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards is preaching and we don't know Edwards' style of preaching. There's been some debate, especially as he aged, there's been some debate as to how he was actually uh, carrying himself in the pulpit. But it is believed by the time that uh, he preaches this message on July the 8th, 1741, that his eyesight has been failing. He is reading his notes up close and he was well known for manuscripting his messages And the message would have been up close in his face and he was reading, evidently, in a monotone, not raising his voice or lowering his voice for fear of, in some way, aggrandizing or dramatizing an important message. But such was the impact of his preaching that day that the people listening to the message shrieked and cried out. Crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. It is also said that the people began to climb the pillars of the church for fear that the floor would open up beneath them and that they would fall into hell because of their own sin. Instead of finishing the sermon, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups and many people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ on July 8th, 1741. Interestingly, it is reported that this was the second time that Edwards, at least the second time that Edwards had preached this message. The first time, nobody shrieked, nobody cried, nobody climbed the pillars. Interestingly, as we think of this as well, the first time that he preached it was in his own church fellowship. The second time he preached it, he was called in urgently to fill the pulpit for one who could not fill the pulpit. And so he pulled this sermon out of his notes and he preached this sermon with very little preparation on this day. There was not a hint of revival the first time that he preached it, but the second time the country is encapsulated in revival, not just where he was filling the pulpit. The point is, as we think of this passage that is before us, do we try to manufacture what God is doing? Or do we celebrate what God is doing, even if it is not among us? And as we get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to see how these pieces fit together. The scripture begins in verse 6, where finally Timothy has returned. The scripture says this, and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time and his word. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Let us ask the Lord's blessing this morning. Our Gracious Heavenly Father, we do lift the nation and the people of Israel before you. We recognize that terrible atrocities have been committed against them just over a week ago now. We know as news and rumors of wars continue to circulate throughout the world that we're seeing an escalation of events even a week later. We recognize that in the midst of this, there's tremendous heartache. There's tremendous suffering on both sides because of the atrocities of evil men. Lord, we this morning ask that in the midst of these things that your spirit would be working in the hearts and minds of of people who have long rejected you. That through these events that they would come to understand Christ as the Messiah. They would turn their hearts in repentance. We long for the repentance of the nation of Israel, but as we pray for these things, we're recognizing that the next next eschatological event the next end times event to unfold is the rapture of your church so lord these things that we're seeing happen in the middle east today remind us of our great urgency to be those who are found faithful proclaiming your word doing the task that is set before us and we praise you that we have an example from a church like Thessalonica before us this morning These people who had suffered atrocities themselves by the hands of evil individuals, many of them Jews, were standing firm and diligent in the things that they had only known for a matter of weeks in Paul's tenure among them. So Lord, we have much to learn as we look to this church. We want to be found faithful. We want to stand firm on the foundation that is Christ. As we sung a few moments ago, we want to be that lived out, active, and sharp in a day and age in which we see so much drifting may we be those who remain firm that your name would be glorified in it Lord let us learn the lessons that we have from this text before us let us faithfully apply them and use them then in day-to-day living that your name would be glorified in it Lord we love you we thank you for all of these things we ask them in the name of Christ amen as we continue in the text before us we recognize Timothy has now come back with his report and what a wonderful report it is uh, the good news that he brings is a significant statement that paul makes we left uh, paul in athens alone last week as we moved our way through verse 5 of this text he has sent timothy back to the church and back to the church at thessalonica that is in the shadows of mount olympus this is a church in a pagan area there are no other fellowships like minded to the thessalonian believers According to Acts chapter 18, by the way, that's an important contextual passage for us. Acts chapter 18, verses 5 through 6, Paul has left Athens now, having uh, conducted ministry there, having not seen very many respond at all to the gospel as Paul has proclaimed its truth in the Areopagus. Paul is now traveling on to Corinth. And by Acts chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, he's quite busy in Corinth when Timothy arrives with news from Thessalonica. In fact, it's so important. Let's turn back there for just a moment. As we really get launched, we start launching ourselves from this point. Acts chapter 18, and we'll see the transition because it helps us to understand what Paul is going through as he writes these words upon Timothy's return. Acts chapter 18, verses 5 and 6 Luke writes, he says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. What a miraculous thing to see Paul doing in Corinth. In this moment, Paul is wrangling with the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Continue on, verse 6. The scripture says. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now I will go to the Gentiles. You see Paul wrangling in uh, Corinth with the Jews. And as Paul's typical habit was, he arrives in a new city. He goes right to the synagogue and he begins to proclaim the truth of Jesus to them. And when those in the synagogue began to revile and reject him, there is a significant change a significant change to Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry has been driven towards by his own motivation and by God's blessing to at least a certain extent to reach the Jews for the sake of Christ. But Paul has encountered opposition and reviling and persecutions and afflictions and hardships and heartaches and sufferings beyond our ability to describe or imagine, even after we've seen some of the images coming out of Israel this week. Paul, in his suffering, shakes off his robes and says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I've been called as an apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm going to the Gentiles. It's also a significant shift, not only in the book of Acts, because now we begin to see Paul really invest into the Gentile church, But we also see a shift in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Because it's at this point that Timothy returns. And you can imagine Paul frustrated, aggravated, discouraged from all that has happened when he is removed from Thessalonica. He's now gone to Athens. He's received no quarter in Athens. And he goes to Corinth. And the problems in Corinth are rampant. And there's no church there yet. Paul is going to stay there and minister among the Corinthians, and many will come to know Christ as Savior. But at this point, there's no church in Corinth. Paul is ministering among the Jews, but they're not embracing him. And so if Paul firmly establishes his role as an apostle to the Gentiles under the Lord's leading... He's also quite busy at this moment. This is all transpiring in Corinth when Timothy arrives, and as it's transpiring there, Paul is quite busy, having just met, as we study the context in earlier part part of Acts chapter 18, having just met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. So things are happening In Corinth, there are believers there, but there has not been an established church until Paul arrives. And as Paul arrives, there's an establishment of a church, but there's already the good structural bones there, like Priscilla and Aquila, to build off of. And so Paul is busy. He's tangling with the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's turning his ministry towards the Gentiles. But when when Timothy arrives, in all of that chaos and all of that busyness, Paul stops. And he says to the Thessalonians, but now that Timothy has arrived, it's almost as if he's saying, finally, Timothy got back and he stops everything that he's doing in Corinth and he focuses for a moment on Paul or on Timothy's ministry and the report from the Thessalonian believers. Paul is about to make a significant shift in ministry and may already be in the process, but when he receives Timothy back in, he begins to shift even more significantly in the book to the Thessalonians. These words indicate that there is a change in the book that is underway. Paul has been concerned for these believers up through half of the book itself, But now, even in the middle of another crisis, Paul wants to press these believers forward. In the midst of persecution, in the time of suffering, Paul is pushing them forward to be firm, to stand. And now it's time for Paul to finish what he started in them. He refers to Timothy's news as good news. This is a fascinating phrase because it is the only time in the New Testament that it is used in reference to something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only time. Only time that Paul uses this term in reference to something other than or any other New Testament writer or proclaimer, such as the angels on the birth of Christ. It's the only time that this phrase is used in reference to something other than the gospel message. This is good news. Paul's placing Timothy's report in an exalted category with no other equals. It shows his high esteem for those believers in Thessalonica and what God is doing in their lives. The salvation continually demonstrated through them. And so Paul receives this good news and it's altering to Paul. Paul is in the midst of some very difficult challenges, challenges that we would say we don't want to endure by no means. But Paul is enduring those and he receives Timothy and he receives good news from Thessalonica and he praises God for the spiritual progress that is happening among these believers. There are two parts to Timothy's good news. Notice what they are. At the end of verse 6, he says, And has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Uh, Timothy reports that their faith and love is strong and reported that they're always thinking of Paul kindly. The first part of the two parts is a spiritual progress that the church is making despite the persecutions. And it's important for you and I to understand that persecutions are not reason for us to wall off and step back. There is this idea that when we face oppositions, that, whoa, we we need to back off. Paul does not back off. He praises the Lord that neither did the Thessalonian believers. They didn't step back and say, whoa, I'm sorry, I'm so offensive. They continued to grow in their faith, following after the things of the Lord. The faith of the believers in Thessalonica was continuing, and uh, and it was found sufficient in the face of the trials that the believers had endured. There's great persecution that has come against this early church, and although Paul highlights the need for continued growth, as we'll see in verse 10, yet this morning... Paul celebrates the fact that they have continued steadfastly in their faith. They have not succumbed to the whispers of the world or the yellings of the world or the persecutions of the Judaizers or the persecutions of the pagan idol worshipers in the shadow of Mount Olympus. They did not surrender ground. Their love for each other, not only was their faith steadfast and firm, their love for each other was abounding. Paul will also return to this principle, and we'll see that, Lord willing, next week in verse 12. However, the news is good news for Paul. It was news that revealed the work of God in their midst, and Paul celebrated that work. Praise God, he's at work there. The first element, as we saw, was spiritual progress and then personal growth. In addition to their spiritual growth, Paul is... uh, thrilled to hear of their personal growth as well and notice how it is lived out because you and I may suffer from what our society suffers from when we've encountered difficulties along the way or we've encountered oppositions or we've encountered trials we are typically those who will blame somebody else for them we'll say well yeah that was the circumstances that was found in the church that i grew up in those those people were hypocritical they abandoned the things of the lord when they wanted to and they held legalistically to them when they wanted to and there was just hypocrites among them or we see the persecutions of the world and say there's the the world says that there's different answers and the church has said there are no other answers and so i'm going to follow the answers of the world because they seem to make me feel better today Paul is concerned about those kinds of stresses on the Thessalonians. And notice what he says, because there's one that's similar. I've used ones that we can more identify with. But there's one that's similar that the Thessalonians may have to deal with. And notice what he says again here in verse 6. At the very end, he says that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we longed to see you. Now, we may take that and first... and. Upon our first Western reading of that phrase, we may have this idea that Paul was concerned that the people were somehow disappointed in him and that he was no longer a people pleaser to them. He wasn't pleasing them. And so Paul's concern was people pleasing. That is not what Paul's concern is. Paul's concern was that they had written him off and thereby the message off as Paul was trying to in some way exploit them as every other preacher had done. Can you imagine, and we do live in a society that is similar to this, we're just not as aware of it, but can you imagine living in a society where everybody who comes in with every vain philosophy and worldly tradition and religious tradition comes in and tries to exploit the masses? you know that because you've seen this happen in spam emails, right? The same thing happens. How many of you received an email from someone in Nigeria who has billions of dollars or millions of dollars and they just want to give it to you? Now the spam filters pick that up, right? We don't even see that anymore. Instead, the spam has gotten more sophisticated. You have an email from Amazon and your package has been mysteriously lost, please contact us at this number that has no connection to Amazon whatsoever and we'll take care of you. (laughs) You are a generation that is accustomed to spam. The Thessalonians were accustomed to exploiters in the same way. Those speakers who would come in and they would Rouse people to their calling, disinterested in the welfare of the people, and then they would go on to the next town. Paul's concern is that the Thessalonian believers, because Paul is removed forcibly from Thessalonica, Paul's concern is that the Thessalonian believers would begin to see him as the crowds were shouting that Paul was, that they would see Paul as that. Paul says, I'm not an exploiter. I'm not disinterested in your welfare. And he has spent the significant portion of the first half of his book detailing those truths, that he is not that. And he's encouraged when news comes that the believers in Thessalonica maintained a worn spot for him, matching his own tender longing to see them, so they sought Paul. They wanted to see him in return. In other words, they cherished the three weeks that they had with Paul. They didn't view Paul as a charlatan, as a shikester who was out to take everything he could and leave, and Paul is rejuvenated by that news. He's rejuvenated by that news. And notice its immediate impact. This morning, I received a text message from a man that I Serve with on the Biblical Ministries board. He's a relatively new member to the board, and he and I have not had many opportunities to connect. He's from a different uh, background. He's a pastor, but he's from a little bit different group. He runs in different circles than I run in. And, and so we've gotten to know each other a little bit, but we haven't exchanged a lot of pleasantries. We're good friends, obviously, but uh, that's when we see one another. I received a text out of the blue this morning uh, saying, brother, you're a great shepherd, Love the people of God and preach. What an incredible encouragement out of the blue this morning. That is similar to what Paul has received from Timothy's report. Notice verses 7 and 8. He says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. As soon as Paul receives this news from Thessalonica, from the mouth of Timothy, his adversity seems to diminish. It didn't. In the actuality of it, it did not diminish. There's still the tangling with words with the Jews who denied Jesus as the Messiah. He's beginning to minister to the Corinthians who are Gentiles. Paul is Busy, he's frustrated at the continued circumstances around, but when news comes of Thessalonica, it is as if those adversities diminished. Like all Christians, Paul is called to suffer afflictions. He just told them that. If you're a Christian, you should expect to suffer for the sake of Christ. That is your lot, and it is worth it. Paul is suffering for the sake of Christ. We certainly know that Paul did indeed suffer as he told others, as he just finished instructing them that they would suffer. We saw that last week. However, there's an interesting byproduct that Paul didn't get into last week that he's now getting into this week. And it's not this idea that Paul found his adversity was eased by the sufferings of others, but rather that Paul found his adversity was eased when he saw God at work in others, when they stood firm. Are you spiritually charged when there's been an authentic movement of God, even if it was not in your life? Are you encouraged by the spiritual growth of those who sit across the auditorium from you this morning? Are you encouraged by them growing rapidly in the things of the Lord? Or are you jealous that God has paid attention to them? Why didn't he pay attention to you? Paul found his adversity was eased, and he was encouraged by the fact that those in Thessalonica would stand firm in the midst of adversities. And find success in following the things of the Lord. Not earthly success, mind you, but biblical success. In the Christian life, we ought to celebrate other Christians standing firm for Christ in the midst of sufferings. One of the interesting things, we all know that COVID changed so much of the way that we view our world. It happened dramatically within church leaders as well. One of the fascinating things that I witnessed was church leaders, and I was in the city of Chicago when this all first happened. And I was pastoring there and I know the stresses uh, that had existed between others, theological and st- still within the same camp of even fundamentalists, but there was tensions that had drawn out, tensions on issues of even salvation as serious as those were, but still staying within the fundamental camps of those things. It was fascinating to watch those who had formerly been opposed to one another theologically were beginning to align together together in the pragmatic elements of their sufferings during the season of COVID. And one reason or the other, there was no pastor who could choose and no church leadership who could choose to do what was going to satisfy the entire congregation, even in one single congregation, let alone thousands of congregations. And so as pastors would make decisions and they would upset somebody in their church and they'd make another decision and set somebody else, up or set somebody else up apart from them, there was a unique coalescing among pastors during that season. During that season, we would begin to work together, even though we had not worked together before. Staying within the biblical framework of orthodoxy, but beginning to share information and and celebrate one another's successes, even though we were facing opposition. That's is where Paul finds the easing of his adversities. Is There's those who are standing faithful. Well, he's in a new place in Corinth, watching the people of God, that is the nation of Israel, continue to reject the Messiah. That was discouraging and emotional for Paul. And yet news comes of some Gentile believers in the shadows of Mount Olympus, in the heart of paganism, that the gospel had taken root so boldly that they were standing firm against the opposition. They were standing unswayed in Paul's adversities in the moment, while not diminishing in scope, diminished in their felt scope. And Paul finds encouragement. It is often taken for granted that there is a commonality and a camaraderie with like-minded Christians. It is not used against them. We certainly must stand firm on doctrine, but we also must draw encouragement from hearing the news of God's work and other local fellowships. Turn, if you will, we're going to turn to a couple places over the next few moments. Turn, if you will, uh, to Romans chapter 1 as Paul will ultimately have challenges with the Roman church. Remember in our study of Philippians that Paul's in Rome under house arrest and the Roman church doesn't respond to him. They don't come and minister to Paul. But notice what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 12. As he writes this and go back to verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Are you encouraged mutually by the faith of other believers, whether they're in this fellowship or not? Hopefully you certainly are by those in this fellowship, but also are you also encouraged by others? Mutually encouraged to them. That doesn't mean that we do everything that they do. That doesn't mean we attend in their fellowships. But it sure, certainly means that we are encouraging one another. It's important that we understand that Paul in First Thessalonians does not relish in suffering, but he understands the value and the impact that suffering makes in the life of the believer. Turn again to another passage, Second Corinthians. We read earlier in Second Corinthians in chapter one, but now turn to chapter seven. And notice that Paul, recognizing in chapter 1 of second Corinthians the sufferings that the Corinthian believers are now facing, remind yourself again that Paul is in Corinth as he's writing what he's writing in First Thessalonians chapter 3. He's in Corinth at the very earliest stages of this church. And he's writing of the challenges there. He's facing the adversities and the sufferings there. But notice what Paul says of those challenges now that the established church of the church in Corinth faces. Notice what he says in chapter 7 verse 4. He says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you and I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing With joy, verse 13 of the same chapter, the scripture says, Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So, Paul sends Titus to Corinth, and when Titus returns, Paul has a similar expression of joy because of the resilient faith of those who follow Christ. Are you encouraged? by the resilient faith of those who follow Christ. Some of the most encouraging biographies are those who stood against the sufferings of whatever world was around them. If you've read of the testimonies of those like Corey Ten Boom, you should be encouraged. Frustrated, perhaps, at the adversity that she had to face, but encouraged at her resilient faith. Paul finds joy not in, he doesn't relish in the sufferings, but Paul finds joy in its outcomes. And in 2 Corinthians 7.13, Titus is refreshed by them. The refiner's fire found in the process of earthly sufferings is rejuvenating to those who look beyond the present circumstances and know that God is at work cleaning off the slag from his bride, the church. That refiner's fire is painful. It's the lapidary saw that I discussed last week is God shapes and cuts and molds and uses the sufferings, not causing them, mind you, but uses them for his glory. Verse 8 then, back in First Thessalonians 3, provides somewhat of a capstone for us as Paul says this. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. How do you define a successful church ministry? How do you define whether you're going to attend one church or another? We evaluate churches typically based on the charisma of the pastor or the likability of the youth pastor or the style of music that's played from the platform. But all of these are extra-biblical, The preacher may preach like Jonathan Edwards, monotoned with the notes in his face. Or he may preach like a Charles Spurgeon. Eloquence. It's said that Charles Spurgeon had a vocabulary three times as large as the average individual. In other words, he could come up with one word three times stated three different ways. But whether it's Jonathan Edwards that God is working through or Charles Spurgeon that God is working through, they are simply vessels. What is it that they proclaim? If the local church is faithful to the word of God, it should find true joy in the word of God preached. No matter who's preaching. It should find true joy in faithful doctrine. For Paul... The fact that these believers were remaining firm and the things of the Lord made ministry and the afflictions that he faced worth it. Listen carefully. Have you ever wondered how Paul endured ministry? How could you go from shipwreck to snakebite to imprisonment to stonings to persecutions, to greater sufferings, to imprisonments, to unjust trials. How can you go through that, Paul, and believe that your ministry was a success? Was it? You and I hold the New Testament together mostly by the pen of the Apostle Paul, driven by the Spirit of God. Was Paul's ministry a success? Maybe not in the world's eyes, but it certainly was a success. And the church today is testament to God using Paul's ministry. When we understand that Paul endured ministry and endured afflictions, when he writes this phrase, there's something that should jump off the page. What made it worth it for Paul? What made it worth it? He says, for now we live. It's if we were to put this in language that maybe we understand even a little bit better, it's almost as if Paul is saying that it is now worth it all. You've given me new life. Here I am slogging away in Corinth, and I'm discouraged by my people's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews refuse to respond. They have blinders on. And so I'm turning to the Gentiles, and I'm I'm in pain over that. But you Thessalonians, you've given me new life. You've rejuvenated ministry. Why? Because they're standing fast in the Lord. They're standing fast in the Lord. The greatest source of joy anyone can give their pastor or their elder is that they continue to be found faithful in walking with the Lord in all circumstances. I look back over years, decades now of ministry, and I can think of a handful of individuals that when I left their presence, I wasn't sure how they were going to do in the Christian walk. I don't know about you. And then years go by, and I hear news. They had wandered away from the things of the Lord, perhaps some of them, for a little bit of time, and then instantly snapped back and are now faithful in the ministries that God has placed them in. What a blessing. What a blessing to me. What a rejuvenating factor for me. It's worth it, no matter the afflictions, no matter the pain, to see other believers succeeding in the Christian walk. And notice this leads to Paul's sincere joy that is led with an inexpressible thanksgiving. This has been Paul's theme throughout the letter so far as he's been excited, he's been thrilled with thanksgiving, but notice how he says it here in verse nine. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Let me shorten that. I can't express how I feel in thanksgiving for you. It's inexpressible thanksgiving. Paul responded to the Corinthian church He responded to the Thessalonians in the same way. The point is made, suffering for the sake of Christ is worth it when the believer walks in the things of the Lord. Why? Because first in the sufferings there was the gospel message going out. And then there was the sanctification process that was being endured and suffered through and so Paul looks at the sufferings and he looks at the faithfulness of the believers standing firm and he praises God with inexpressible, joy-filled thanksgiving to the Lord. He says, I, I don't even know the words to say. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul with nothing to say? That's where he's at. He says, I don't even know how to express this. I don't even know how to say this. Paul found words to be inadequate And the expression of his appreciation for what God had done in the lives of these believers. Believer, do you feel that way towards others that God is at work in? This is the true love that they had. Paul highlights their faith and love. He's going to highlight love again in verse 12. He's going to highlight faith in verse 10 before we close this morning, Lord willing. But as he addresses their love for one another, do you express this kind of love where you look at another believer and you say, praise God, God's at work in their life. Look at what God's doing. Not to say, God really needs to work in their life. Rather to say, praise God, God's at work in their life. It's pretty easy for us to be judgmental on it. Let's be cautious of that. Paul's not judgmental. He says all all of his distress and affliction and all of their distress and affliction is turned to all joy. These words that Paul uses are words of completeness, of fullness. Paul cannot express all the joy that he feels in words and he praises God nonetheless. One of the great truths, Romans chapter eight, reminds us that when we don't know what to ask or how to ask, that the spirit of God aids In our prayers, in Romans chapter eight, I think Paul's praying that here, so Lord, I don't even know what I don't even know how to express thanksgiving. I, I don't even know I don't even know how to put it into words. But Lord, use your spirit to make these prayers effective in the thanksgiving. And notice that it's not that Paul is praying that they would endure their sufferings, but Paul is thanks, he's giving thanksgiving to God because they have endured. Notice this, Paul continues in his prayer. How many of us, and I'm guilty, so I'm pointing the finger at myself mainly. How many of us have received a praise to a prayer request that we've been praying for a long period of time, and we write, we praise the Lord for it in the one prayer request, and then we strike it off of our list and not think of it again? Paul didn't do that with the Thessalonians. All through this letter Paul has been praying for them, praising God for them, praying that they would stand firm. That's what we saw even last week. Paul is continuing to pray that they would stand firm to remain diligent. And now we come to verse 10 and notice verse 10 he says, as we prayed, or as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul, adding that to verse 9, says we're giving thanksgiving to God and we're not done praying. In fact, we've only ramped it up. We're praying even more unceasingly. say, but Paul, you were praying unceasingly before. He goes, yes, but now I'm thinking of them more, so I'm praying for them more. Do we praise God in that same way for God's work in other people's lives? That's what Paul is praising God for. Paul falls to his knees in prayers of thanksgiving and he praises the Lord for the people of Thessalonica. He prayed that regardless of their present circumstances that he would again return to those believers and now he, says, now he says, praise the Lord, they're standing firm, I still want to go see those other believers. And so his prayer increases, it ramps up all the more. He's engaged and involved in their lives and in their ministries. He would again He he prays that he would again return to those believers and supply what is needed that is lacking in their faith. How do you pray when you see answers to asked prayers for other believers? I think through, and Scott does a great job on Sunday evenings going through our prayer list and hitting urgent and immediate prayer needs of our fellowship as he opens up the evening service. Have you ever followed through diligently to hear the praises of those prayer requests and then to continue to praise the Lord for his answers in the lives of his people? Not just a one-time Thanksgiving, not waiting for November to give Thanksgiving, but constantly, unceasingly, night and day, Every time God brings to remembrance those situations, are you praising God for his answers, for the successes of other believers? We're pretty quick to say, Lord, I need strength. Are we just as quick as to say, Lord, thank you for giving them strength. Thank you for ministering to their needs. Thank you for loving them and providing them success in the midst of afflictions. Paul prays more unceasingly after the news from Timothy than he did before. And it's tough to match him before. But Paul is on his knees in the midst of all the chaos. You can almost see the image. I don't want to highlight it for us just for a moment before we close out in this room to grow, which is our next statement. I'm building to that. Can you imagine the scenario? Paul is perhaps sewing on a tent with Priscilla and Aquila getting to know them he's sewing on a tent with them and as he's sewing on a tent with them suddenly a crier announces Timothy has arrived back from Thessalonica Paul lays down everything that he's doing and he's probably a little bit at least in his spirit he's concerned over what's going on in Corinth he's concerned over all the adversity and the afflictions that he's faced there and they've been compounded from all the way back from Philippi, as he starts his missionary journey from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, or actually between Philippi to Berea to Thessalonica to Athens to now Corinth. It's just a never-ending series in Paul's earthly finite mind of failures. Wouldn't you feel that way after those four places? I went to Philippi. I was imprisoned and chased out of Philippi. After only being there a short period of time, I went to Berea. They didn't even let me set foot in Berea, and the persecution was already there. I went off to Thessalonica, and guess what? After three weeks, there's an uprising there. Different group of people, same story, and I get kicked out of Thessalonica. I won't go to Athens. No one wants to listen to me. I go all the way to Corinth, and here I have the same problem now with the Jewish people in Corinth as I had with the Jewish people in Thessalonica. I can't break through. Would that not seem as failure from a human perspective? And then Paul receives Timothy. In the midst of the struggles as he's been sewing on his tents, I don't know that that's what he was doing. We don't see that in the text. But that's the image that I get as I'm reading through uh, this text. Paul is uh, conflicted and afflicted. And he's met Priscilla and Aquila, who will make a significant inroad into his life. And as he's meeting with them, all of these thoughts are turning around in his mind. Would they not be in yours? And then he says, or then he hears, rather, that Timothy has arrived. Paul lays all of that aside. He doesn't tell Timothy, let me tell you what's happened to me since I last saw you. You wouldn't believe this. I was in Athens. They didn't like me there. I came to Corinth. You wouldn't believe what's going on here. He lays all of that aside and he doesn't say, I got to tell you my story. He says, Timothy, tell me about the church at Thessalonica. And when Timothy finishes telling Paul, Paul falls to his knees in thanksgiving to the Lord. Beloved do you have that kind of humility? Or is it all about your afflictions and confliction? Paul does have one bit of instruction as he closes out his prayer request for them. And he's going to spend the rest of his book helping them grow in their faith and advance in their love for one another. But notice what he says in verse 10, at the very end. He says that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul says there's room to grow. Amen to that. Don't we all have room to grow? We have a distance to go. If we didn't, you would have crossed the finish line by now. You wouldn't be sitting here. We have a distance to go, we have a race to run, as Paul says in other places. As Paul rounds out his prayer requests of praise, he reminds the believers that they haven't yet achieved it all, but that they've got a good start, a good launching off the starting blocks to run the race. There's work to do, there's room to grow, and he asks the Lord to supply what is lacking because you can't supply it. You have to depend on the Lord. Paul says that he's praying that the Lord would supply what's lacking. If you're trying to work your way, if you're trying to earn in any element, even after faith, if you're trying to earn any kind of merit, stop trying to earn it in your own effort. Depend on what God has supplied you to do. And By the way, that will be far more than you could have ever supplied. There's often the misnomer that God will never ask you to do something that, he, that you cannot do. That's totally untrue. That's, that's terrible humanistic philosophy. God will always ask you to do what you cannot do. And then he will give you the strength to do it. Will you look to the Lord for that which is lacking? Or will you look inside and try to do it yourself? Paul asks that the Thessalonians, as he's asking the Lord for this, he asks that the Thessalonians would look to the Lord to give what the supply was needed. Not to themselves. There are several important applications we should draw from Paul's interaction with Timothy's report. I love his response because I'm the type A personality. I'm like, okay, Timothy, uh, tonight, got to get this tent done. I, I got to get it out to the, the customer. And by the way, tomorrow I'm meeting with such and such Jewish people and some Gentile people. So why don't we wait until a couple days you rest, I'll get to work, and then we'll meet at the end of the week. That's my type A personality. Paul sets it all aside and he says, Tell me, Timothy, about the church at Thessalonica. Beloved, I have a lot to learn from this example. And I trust that you do as well. Let us be those who apply. There are several applications. I just pulled up a few. First, do we celebrate the faithfulness of other believers? Are you genuinely encouraged by other people finding success in godliness? That's one application. Do we pray more for answered prayers than that than that the prayers of petition would be answered do we pray more for in praising for the answered prayers than that prayers of petition may be answered are we consumed by what the church does for us rather than a humble awareness of God at work in our church let's correct that attitude are we aware of that God is at work in our fellowship. Beloved, one of the great things that I get to experience as your pastor is to hear how God is using you in various and multiple ways that I can't even begin to describe in one single setting. God is using you to accomplish great things. Let us all celebrate those great truths. Let's close our time in the Word of God. I'm going to invite the music team to come back and Lead us as we close out our service and continue singing before our great God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the example of Paul towards the letter that he has received from Timothy, or rather the arrival of Timothy. Lord, I pray that we would be those who would apply some of these truths that we have discussed this morning. Allow us to be people who genuinely celebrate the successes of other believers, that we're thrilled, and that even our own afflictions are diminished by those believers who are standing firm for biblical truth, not for not for those things of uncon- or unconsequential or insignificant, but those things that are truly biblically significant. Lord, we hold a lot of our preferences in such high regard; it's difficult for us to see sometimes the great value of holding a biblical principle dearly and paying for it. But I pray that we would not only identify it in ourselves, we would identify it and celebrate those who stand firm for biblical things around us. And May we surround ourselves with them so near and dear that we would become like them and they like us as we pursue what Christ's likeness looks like. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the example of Paul and his great love for the church at Thessalonica and his abounding and greater love for you. I pray that we would mimic that example out of him as he follows the example of Christ. Lord, now I pray that our voices would rise together and that as we continue in song, that united congregationally, corporately, that we would exalt your glorious name and that you alone would be praised for. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things that we have prayed in Christ's name. Amen.